Welcome to Yale Cancer Center Answers with Dr. Zed Chu and Francine Foss. I'm Bruce Barber. Dr. Chu is Deputy Director and Chief of Medical Oncology at Yale Cancer Center, and he's an internationally recognized expert on colorectal cancer. Dr. Foss is a professor of medical oncology and dermatology, and she's an expert in the treatment of lymphomas. If you'd like to join the discussion, you can contact the doctors directly. The address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and the phone number is 1-888-234-4YCC. This evening, Ed welcomes Dr. David LaFell. Dr. LaFell is the CEO of Yale Medical Group and the David Page Smith Professor of Dermatologic Surgery, and he's also the author of the book Total Skin. Dan, one of the things that we've done with uh, some of our previous guest experts is kind of get a little insight as to why that individual decided to go into the particular field. So maybe you can kind of start off by telling us you know, why you decided to, to get into uh, studying skin diseases and dermatology. Uh, it's a, an interesting story, at least to me. Uh, I actually trained in internal medicine and did part of my training at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Uh, during that residency uh, in the early 80s, uh, there was a new disease being identified in New York and other metropolitan areas. Uh, young men were developing purple spots. Hmm. And that, of course, was the introduction of uh, Kaposi sarcoma in gay men. And at the same time, immunology and the role of the immune system in the skin was taking off, at least from the point of view of research. So those two factors, taking care of those young men and also being exposed to exciting scientific research in the immunology of the skin, led me to complete my residency in medicine, but then to go on into dermatology. Uh, that's interesting. Obviously, the dermatology program at the Yale School of Medicine obviously has been very strong in identifying skin diseases and trying to understand the immunologic basis for those skin diseases. That's right. I think under the leadership of uh, Chairman Rick Edelson over the past 25 years or so, uh, dermatology research at Yale has really been in the vanguard of understanding how the immune system functions through the skin. Remember, the skin is the body's largest organ, and it's also the organ that first comes in contact with the environment. So for anyone who's had poison ivy, uh, I think it's uh, pretty obvious that the skin has to have a mechanism of remembering that it doesn't like poison ivy, and if you go near it, it's going to give you a rash. That's a uh, graphic way of describing the fact that the skin has an ability to remember the type of irritants or antigens it comes in contact with. And as we talk in more detail about skin cancer, I'm actually going to come back to the concept of the skin's immune system because we now know that it plays an important role in skin cancer as well. Ah, okay. Well, as I have had uh, numerous bouts with poison ivy, and it can be pretty uh, discomforting. Uh, I, I understand that well. So, so how did you then get uh, focused onto skin cancer, which really is your main area of interest, and really you're one of the leading experts in the country? When I uh, was doing my residency in dermatology at Yale, I found myself gravitating towards that aspect of dermatology that focused on oncology or skin cancers. At that time, uh, and this is in the late 80s, a new subspecialty of dermatology was developing, uh, which focused not just on skin cancer per se, but on a technique for treating non-melanoma skin cancer called the Mohs technique. 
associated also with plastic reconstruction. And I found the idea of being able to diagnose, treat, and in the vast majority of cases, get very good results, very rewarding. In addition, uh, because of my uh, exposure to immunology research, I identified this as a very uh, unique way in which I could combine clinical practice with uh, clinical research in an academic career. Hmm. Now, uh, we're in the month of May, which is Skin Cancer Awareness Month. And is there just one type of skin cancer, or are there different types of skin cancer? There are different types of skin cancer, but I'd like to try to reduce it to something very uh, straightforward and easy to remember. There are basically two categories that listeners have to know about. There's melanoma and non-melanoma skin cancer. Under the heading of non-melanoma skin cancer, there are two types of cancer that you can think of as cousins because they are both caused by ultraviolet radiation from the sun. And these include basal cell cancer, which is the most common cancer in humans, and squamous cell cancer. Now, basal cell cancer doesn't normally spread, in fact, very rarely for all practical purposes. In fact, it doesn't spread uh, to other organs. Squamous cell cancer, uh, in a very, very small percentage of cases, does have the potential to metastasize to other organs. Uh, But in the vast majority of cases, squamous cell cancer and basal cell cancer are easily treated, and that's the end of the story. Going back to the other big category of skin cancer, melanoma is a form of skin cancer that is uh, potentially much more concerning because in a more advanced stage, it does have the potential to spread in the bloodstream and actually cause death in, in certain cases. So when we talk about skin cancer, uh, we talk about basal cell cancer, squamous cell cancer, both of which arise from the cells of the epidermis or the top layer of the skin, and we talk about melanoma, which is actually a cancer of the pigment cells that reside in the bottom layer of the top layer of the skin. And, and, for, the, and for the purposes of our discussion this evening, we're really going to focus primarily on the non-melanoma skin cancer, which, which you mentioned. So, so David, over the years, kind of throughout your career, have you seen a change in the, the incidence of the non-melanoma skin cancers? We think that there has been a, a change, if not in the incidence, then in the distribution. In other words, the types of people that are getting skin cancer. Uh, when I was in medical school and even in training, uh, it was unusual to see people under 50 with a basal cell cancer or a squamous cell cancer. And now it's not unusual to see uh, people in their 30s and 40s. And at the uh, Yale School of Medicine in the dermatologic surgery unit, it's not infrequent for us to see patients in their 20s. But I will say that uh, the patients in their 20s are more often than not women. And more often than not, uh, when we inquire about their sun exposure practices, we always ask about the use of tanning beds. And probably the majority of women in their early to mid-20s that come in with a basal cell cancer or a squamous cell cancer have earlier on used ultraviolet tanning beds. So, so David, uh, you know, it's interesting that uh, you say that these tanning parlors really pose an increased risk for individuals developing skin cancer because... You know, when we hear the advertisements about these uh, tanning salons, the claim is that there, there is no increased risk for developing either skin cancer or any other type of skin diseases. Uh, 
Well, uh, those claims in advertising and in other venues are completely false and a danger to public health. Uh, if you want to know how I really feel about it, I'm happy to tell you. But <laughs> for purposes of this discussion, uh, listeners have to realize that these tanning parlors use ultraviolet lights that emit ultraviolet radiation that is the same as ultraviolet radiation from the sun that is an environmentally documented cancer-causing agent. And years of research, including research we've done at Yale, have not only confirmed that ultraviolet radiation causes skin cancer, but we even believe we understand the mechanism that is in effect in most cases. So the tanning industry is not uh, helping anyone. And I think, uh, going back to your original question about changes in the incidence of skin cancer, I think they're actually impacting uh, the distribution of skin cancer and maybe the incidence hmm. by making people believe that it's safe. Not only that it's safe, I've seen advertisements claiming that you need to go to a tanning hmm. parlor because you need ultraviolet radiation to get more vitamin D. Hmm. Okay, interesting. Now, other than sun exposure, which clearly is the main cause, are, are there any other risk factors or causes for developing the non-melanoma skin cancer? Well, I, uh, yes, in the sense that there are certain people that are more at risk to developing skin cancer from sun exposure, pre precisely because they have less natural protection against the ultraviolet radiation. And uh, in general, I think listeners who fit the description know who you are, but it always bears repeating. So individuals with light-colored hair, fair skin, people with light-colored eyes, blue, green, or gray, are all at increased risk for developing skin cancer because, among other things, their ability to protect against the harmful effects of the sun is lessened because they lack natural pigment response or tanning response to ultraviolet radiation. Uh, but that's not to say that people that don't fit that description aren't at risk. In fact, we routinely see people who would describe themselves as a more olive-skinned, uh, Mediterranean heritage coming in with skin cancer. And the reason for that is over the course of a lifetime, they've managed to get enough sun exposure to overwhelm their body's hmm. ability to defend. Now, there is this kind of myth out there that, say, African-Americans who have dark-colored skin really aren't at increased risk for developing skin cancer, but what you just said would suggest that they also are at increased risk. Well, it's a, it's a matter of degree. Uh, we, we, we speak less in terms of race and more in terms of skin type. So mm -hmm. people with the, the uh, much darker skin types have a very, very low incidence mm -hmm. of non-melanoma skin cancer. The thing that uh, these listeners have to be aware of is the risk of melanoma mm -hmm. occurring on the hands and feet and under the nails. They, they seem to have an increased risk for that. Oh, okay. And, and typically, what should an individual look out for if there's a concern that a skin cancer may be developing? Basal cell cancer is, is tricky. And it's tricky because it can appear in many different ways. And I'll try to go through the descriptions momentarily. But the real reason it's tricky is because it can often heal up and go away for a month or two only to come back. So it lulls the person into a false sense of security. And if you ask patients when they first notice uh, the skin cancer, they'll often have a very hard time being precise about it because it does mm. go away and then recur without doing anything in particular. It's the nature of its biology. But the classic basal cell cancer appears as a small dome-shaped bump that's pearly in quality. And if you look closely in a magnifying mirror, you'll see little blood vessels coursing through it. But 
basal cell cancer can also look like a scar, a whitish, smooth, waxy scar. And if you have one of those, but you can't actually remember having an injury, you probably should have it checked out. That's called a morpheiform basal cell cancer. Then there's superficial basal cell cancer that can sometimes just look like a patch of eczema. The big difference is that it doesn't go away with simple topical treatment. And in between each of these is a wide range of growths that could represent basal cell cancer. But if you were to ask me what is the cardinal sign, what is the most common sign that patients talk about when they come in with basal cell cancer, I would have to say bleeding. That the growth started bleeding Uh and then it healed up and started bleeding again, or there was blood on the pillow, uh, and that's how I realized uh, there was something going on because this spot which I picked at, uh, hasn't gone away. Now, people also will notice, say, for instance, moles throughout their body. Do they have to worry about developing the basal cell or squamous cell cancers, or is that primarily melanoma that they should be worried about? Uh, the moles relate to melanoma primarily. In addition, basal cell cancer and squamous cell cancer more often than not are going to occur on sun-exposed areas. So the face, the scalp, the tops of the ears, the backs of the hands, and in women, uh, historically below the knees. Hmm. Okay. And how about on the back? Is there an increased incidence if someone's you know, lying on the back getting sun exposed? There is. We see it more often in men uh, than in women, men working outdoors, for example, or uh-huh. uh, recreationally with, without a shirt. Now, uh, obviously, uh, sun protection is, is key for anyone who's going out in the sun. And, and what are your general recommendations for, for sun exposure? or for for some protection to try to prevent against increased sun exposure? So, you know, doctors tell people to do a lot of different things, and some of the advice is rooted in science, and some of it is rooted in tradition, and some of it isn't rooted in anything. But when it comes to sun protection, we know what the basic science is of how ultraviolet radiation causes skin cancer. In addition, we know from various research studies that if you're successful in reducing the amount of sun exposure, the number of precancerous clones of cells in the skin will actually decrease. So there's a real benefit to sun protection. Some people say, I'm 60, 70 years old, what difference does it make the horse is out of the barn? And I would say, well, the horse may be out of the barn, but he's not out of the corral. And so it makes sense to follow the following steps. Number one, use a sunscreen with a sun protection factor of 30 uh, that also uh, provides ultraviolet A protection. Number two, wear a brimmed hat. And, you know, here we're uh, transitioning from healthcare to style and fashion. And many people, many men certainly, claim that there are no brimmed hats that really look good. And I think, you know, that may be true. It's a matter of taste. But any of the hats out there look a lot better than having surgery on your ear or on uh, other parts of your face that is required because of skin cancer. Um, in addition, you want to make sure that you're not in the sun during peak hours. You should be in the shade between 10 and 4 at least between 10 and 3. And if you follow those steps as part of a comprehensive plan of sun protection, uh, I think you'll really benefit yourselves. And I've had patients, many patients over the years, that have gotten serious about sun protection. And guess what? I don't see them as often. Hmm, interesting. Now, David, you know, we go to the drugstore and we see all of the sunblocks, and there's a 15 and 30 and 45, 50. Maybe can you just kind of give us a quick rundown on what, the, what that number really means? So sun protection factor, or SPF, refers to 
the degree to which the product will protect you against ultraviolet B, or the burning rays. And so if something has an SPF of 30, and you're normally able to stay out in the sun, say you have very fair skin for 10 minutes before turning pink, it means that you should be able to stay out, at least theoretically, for 30, SPF 30, times 10 minutes, 300 minutes. But it's really just a rough guide, and it's going to vary with the individual. The other thing you need to look for is UVA protection. And the most common ingredients to look for with respect to ultraviolet A or those are the tanning rays uh, and aging rays. Uh, the most important thing to look for in that regard is something called Parsol 1789 or avobenzone uh, and or zinc oxide. Great. Well, you're here listening to Yale Cancer Center Answers, and our special guest is Dr. David LaFell this evening. Uh, at the uh, other side of the break, we'll talk more about the treatment uh, about skin cancer with our guest, Dr. David LaFell. There are over 10 million cancer survivors in the U.S., and the numbers keep growing. Completing cancer treatment is very exciting, but cancer and its treatment can be a life-changing experience. After treatment, the return to normal activities and relationships can be difficult, and cancer survivors may face other long-term side effects, including heart problems, osteoporosis, fertility issues, and an increased risk of second cancers. Resources for cancer survivors are available at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as the Yale Cancer Center, to keep cancer survivors well and focused on healthy living. This has been a Medical Minute, and you'll find more information at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to the WNPR Health Forum from Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Center Answers. This is Dr. Ed Chu, and I'm joined here this evening by Dr. David LaFell, Deputy Dean of Clinical Affairs at the Yale School of Medicine, and the David Page Smith Professor of Dermatologic Cancer, Dermatologic Surgery. David, uh, before the break, we were talking about um, uh, the use of uh, sun protection to try to prevent uh, sun exposure. Maybe we can talk a little bit about if, in fact, someone believes that they may have a lesion that's associated could develop into skin cancer, what should that individual do? Well, the most definitive way of determining whether you have skin cancer or not is to be seen by a dermatologist who will examine you carefully, and if there is a concern about skin cancer, will perform a small biopsy, which is a very simple office-based procedure that provides a great deal of information. Now, when would, when, when would that individual be then referred to someone like yourself, who's, uh, whose expertise is in dermatologic surgery? The vast majority of skin cancers are easily treated by your uh, dermatologist or plastic surgeon. Uh, the uh, question of referral comes up based on the type of skin cancer that it is. So the the technique that we specialize in uh, at the Yale Cancer Center is the technique called Mohs Micrographic Surgery. And this is a method developed, oh, more than 40 years ago that allows for the very conservative, stepwise, layered removal of skin cancers. And th there, there are two purposes to this technique. Number one is obtaining the highest cure rate, which it does do in the 98% range. And the other is to minimize the removal of normal tissue so that you get the optimum cosmetic results. Since most of these skin cancers occur on the, the face, mm -hmm. uh, it's important to take an approach that's very conservative and at the same time gets the highest cure rate. 
So the type of patients that would be referred to us would be those that have recurrent skin cancers, in other words, skin cancers that failed previous treatment, those that are uh, on the central facial area or in difficult areas like around the eyes or ears, or those that have a microscopic appearance where there are little roots, something more than just a superficial skin cancer. Now, I guess some people might be concerned if, if we're talking about surgery on the face, because obviously there might be some cosmetic issues. Right. Uh, uh, is there ever any concern about uh, the outcome well, in, that, in those situations? Uh, as, as, as good physicians, we try to pride ourselves on always being concerned on behalf of the patient and watching out for their uh, welfare. In reality, uh, the Mohs technique goes hand in glove with plastic reconstruction, and we do a substantial amount of plastic reconstruction. I would say virtually more hmm. than 90% of the reconstruction we do in the office at the time that the skin cancer is removed. Uh, rarely we have to refer to our colleagues in plastic surgery because more complex procedures are needed. We do approximately 3,500 cases a year referred from all over the region. And what's important to note is that not everyone needs plastic surgery or, or stitching. In fact, uh, uh, probably 25 to 30 percent of patients uh, benefit from the conservative removal of the skin cancer and don't require stitches or plastic surgery at all. You can allow the wound to heal naturally and cosmetically in appropriately chosen cases. It can look better than if you tried to do plastic surgery. Now, is there anything that needs to be done after surgery has performed, or really it's just kind of observation at that point? It is. The, the cure rate for, with the Mohs technique, and often uh, with uh, procedures that are done locally in the dermatologist's or, or uh, local physician's office, have very high cure rates. Radiation treatment is almost never needed in those cases, though we do use it in more advanced and aggressive cases that uh, uh, involve invasion of the nerves by cancer, but those fortunately are relatively rare. There is no chemotherapy for skin cancer. It really is a treatment at the present time that not only is adequately and fully treated surgically, but in fact, through new therapies, we're even moving away from surgical treatments. Well, maybe you can get into a little bit. So what, what are the kind of non-surgical alternative approaches that one could take uh, to treat skin cancer? The good thing about skin cancer, if there is a good thing, is that it's out there and accessible to treatment. As a result, it lends itself to uh, topical therapy, the use of creams and other approaches. Uh, perhaps uh, increasingly the best-known topical approach is a drug called Amiquimod. The brand name is Aldara, and it's a cream that's applied anywhere from every other day to five days a week for a period of six weeks or more or less. Uh, and it stimulates the immune system of the skin, which I mentioned earlier, to produce natural interferon, among other things, which actually destroys the cancer cells. And in appropriately selected cases, its cure rate is very good, and it allows removal of the skin cancer without any surgical intervention. Wow, that's interesting. And it also kind of uh, brings us back to your initial point of how the Im immunology system really is intertwined with uh, skin diseases and skin cancer. It is. And I think the Aldara story is a great example of the fact that the immune system plays a constant surveillance role 
uh, skin cancers are always brewing in people that have had a lot of sun exposure. We know microscopically you can see it under the microscope. You can see precancerous cells jumbling up and getting ready to, to grow. So there has to be a mechanism that's keeping those cells in check. And the immune system probably plays that role. Uh, however, ultraviolet radiation from the sun, interestingly enough, and we've known this actually for many decades, can blow away some of the immune protective cells of the skin, thereby creating an opportunity for skin cancer cells to, to multiply and grow. Many people know, for example, that if they're prone to cold sores, they can break out after they've been in the sun. And one of the possibilities is that ultraviolet radiation from the sun is suppressing the local immune protection that keeps that virus in check allowing it uh, to otherwise uh, break out into a cold sore. So there are many, many examples of how actual skin problems reflect the function or dysfunction of the immune system. That's fascinating. Now, David, you and your group here uh, at the, the Yale Cancer Center have been very actively involved in various aspects of clinical research. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about you know, the types of research that you've been involved in. Well, I think the, probably the most uh, salient uh, uh, achievement was under the leadership of Alan Bale, uh, combining his uh, research endeavor with our clinical organization, we were able to identify, along with other uh, researchers internationally that were part of the effort, uh, the skin cancer gene. The patched gene, it's called, is actually a gene that's similar to one found in the fruit fly, and this was back in the uh, mid to late 90s. Since that time, as a result and, uh, of those discoveries and based on a lot of those findings, other researchers have gone on as well to clarify not just the mechanism of how cancer is caused in the skin, in the case of basal cell cancer, but it turns out that the patch gene may play a role in other cancers as well. So. Uh, what we do know is ultimately discovery is going to be what enhances human comfort and health, and that doing translational research, in other words, doing research that uses uh, human tissue or involves patients to answer questions about mechanisms, uh, is the only way we're really going to develop uh, effective treatments. We often talk about translational research as bench to bedside, but in reality, most translational research, in my opinion, actually originates at the bedside when the clinician makes an observation about a disease, has a discussion with a basic scientist or a laboratory scientist, and together they begin to try to answer questions by joining forces and by joining their different intellectual perspectives. Well, and as you say, it really is a, is a, a two-way street. It really requires exactly. dialogue on both sides. Exactly. So in the, in the 90 seconds or so that we have left for the show, it's amazing how quickly time has gone. Maybe you can uh, tell our listeners a little bit about uh, your book called Total Skin. Uh, Total Skin uh, was written in 2000. It was published by Hyperion. And my goal then was to be a reliable home reference for skin. There are many, many books out there that will tell you how to look 50 years younger. Uh, if you're only 40, it'll tell you how to look 30 years younger. Uh, all sorts of things that are actually not substantiated by science, but which appeal to the imagination of people as well as to me, frankly. However, what people really need to know is what do I have 
is it serious? Who should I see? How do you treat it? Is it something I, is it something I can take care of at home? And so uh, I wrote Total Skin and included in it uh, a variety of color photographs, uh, which are pretty uh, effective at identifying specific skin lesions, although people should not rely on it exclusively for that type of information. What I did do recently, though, the book has been out of print. It's still available on Amazon, I believe, but it's, it's out of print. But better than buying it, it's now available for free on the Yale Dermatology website or the following website, www.totalskinmd.com. And I would encourage listeners, if they have questions about their skin health, it covers everything from skin cancer to rashes to some of those issues related to looking younger. And uh, it's in uh, PDF form, easy to download and read. Well, I, I've read the book, and it and really is terrific. So well, I, I would you. strongly encourage all of you listeners out there to go ahead and download uh, the book. It, re- it really is, uh, I think, very, very helpful for those of you who uh, want to learn more about uh, skin in general. You've been listening to Yale Cancer Center Answers, and I'd like to thank our guest expert this evening, Dr. David LaFell, for another terrific program. Thank Next you. week, we will continue our focus on May's Skin Cancer Awareness Month with a discussion on that other type of skin cancer, melanoma. Until then, I'm Ed Chu from the Yale Cancer Center, wishing you a safe and healthy week. If you have questions or would like to share your comments, go to YaleCancerCenter.org, where you can also subscribe to our podcast and find written transcripts of past programs. I'm Bruce Barber, and you're listening to the WNPR Health Forum from Connecticut Public Radio.